We're going to look at the end of Philippians 2 this morning, and, and really what we've seen um, throughout this book of Philippians, and especially last week's passage, one of the tensions that Paul has raised for us and that I've attempted to draw out is this, that God loves us, but he loves us too much to leave us as we are. And so God has set these insanely high expectations for us. Like these crazy high expectations for us that we are supposed to be like Jesus, okay? So the reason that he does this, understand here, is because he is our gracious and loving Heavenly Father. And so on the one hand, he loves us unconditionally. Absolutely. He loves us fiercely. And and he has offered us this free gift of salvation through his Son, by grace through faith. And so there's nothing that we can do to disqualify ourselves from being adopted as his children. There's nothing that we can do to disqualify ourselves so that we're suddenly kicked to the curb. We're no longer allowed to be his children. But there's also nothing that we can do to enhance our position with God. There's nothing we can do to get God to be more pleased with us. It's all grace. Okay, so... As far as being adopted as his children, as far as being accepted as a child of God, there's nothing that we're going to do to change our status. God loves us exactly the way that we are. It's all grace. At the same time, at the same time, because we are his children, not so that we can become his children, but because we are his children, God has set these insanely high expectations for us that we should be like Jesus. His expectation for us is nothing short of perfection. And so it's at this point that a lot of times we start to feel the weight of this perfection because this is something that we cannot attain and we know it. See, what we really want is for God to love us unconditionally, to accept us unconditionally, to allow us to be his children unconditionally, and then to just kind of ignore us. That's kind of what we want, isn't it? We want God to love us and then just leave us alone. But understand that that's not asking God to love us more. That's asking God to love us less. Anybody who's a parent gets this. Like if, you, if you've got children and you love your kids, you're not like, man, I love you so much, you're my child, and now I'm going to let you do whatever you want. That's terrible parenting. Like nobody would do that. I love you so much. If you want to play with those matches, you go right ahead. Like, we're not going to do that. I love you so much. You know what? You can do whatever you want. Plan traffic, no problem. I love you that much. No, that's terrible parenting. The most loving thing that I can do as a parent is set high expectations for my children and then lovingly and graciously push them towards those expectations. And the most loving thing that God does for us is he sets high expectations to be perfect. And then he lovingly and graciously pushes us towards those expectations. But the temptation for us towards those expectations, the temptation for us though, is to either lower that bar a bit, you know, make it a little bit more attainable. So we kind of look at ourselves and go, you know, that's a good place for the bar. I think I've kind of hit it. That's a good, that's reasonable right about here. It's always kind of where we are on a side note. That's the bar that we like to set. Or we bail completely. We just throw up our hands and say, hey, you know what? This isn't even worth trying. We're not even going to bother anymore. Like, what's the point? Might as well just give up. But see, what God wants us to do is he wants us to keep on keeping on. He wants us to aim for that perfection. And instead of lowering the bar to rest in his grace that overwhelms and swallows up our failures, all the while still straining for the perfection of Christ to look more like him. 
Okay, so let me give you a picture of this, all right? So I've got two boys. Uh, they like to fight, all right? They're, they're young. They like to fight. Now, our goal, our ultimate goal, our ultimate expectation for our boys is that they would love and protect and care for one another. That, that's a good goal for them, okay? Now, what I don't do as a parent is I don't lower that bar. I'm not like, hey, you know what? I just want you guys to be civil to each other. Maybe just don't punch each other quite so many times. Like, that's not, that's not a good strategy. And I also don't remove the bar completely. So it's like, hey, you know, two kids go out. One comes, you know, comes out as like Lord of the Flies in the bedroom. We'll see which one survives. Like, that's not a good expectation either, right? We don't just remove the expectation. No, what we do is we set the bar high. We want you to love and care and protect each other. That's what we want you to do. That's how we want you to love. And so what you hear us saying, though, a lot, is we want you to do better. I'm not expecting them to love each other perfectly tomorrow. I, what I want for them to do is a little bit better. A few fewer fights, a few fewer kicks to the face, a few, a little more kindness, right? That's all I'm shooting for here. A little bit of progress. Just do a little bit better. And in the meantime, there's grace. When they fail, there's grace. I don't kick them to the curb. I'm not like, hey, you're not part of my family anymore. Get out of here. I don't care about you anymore. No, of course not. What we do is we sit them down and we lovingly, firmly correct them. And we hold up that expectation We hold up that expectation and we lovingly, graciously push them towards that expectation. And so God has this insanely high expectation for us. And he doesn't lower the bar and we're not supposed to just give up. Instead, he is going to lovingly, graciously push us towards that expectation. And as we fail, there's grace. There's grace. And so the ultimate goal then... Follow me here. The ultimate goal here is that we would be perfect. But we know we're not going to... That's not going to happen this side of heaven... But we keep striving for that. And my goal today is not to be perfect. My goal today is to do a little bit better. My goal tomorrow is to do a little bit better. My goal the next day is to do a little bit better, to look a little bit more like Christ. So as we've been walking through this book of Philippians, and I know, man, it's been some heavy stuff. And if you're just kind of like weighed down under some of that, and you're like, man, I know that, that God loves me and I'm his child, but he's got this expectation that I'm supposed to be like Jesus. And I don't even know what to do with that. I know I've failed so many times and I keep failing and I keep failing. Be encouraged. Don't lower the bar. Don't give up, but be encouraged that wherever you are, God's grace meets you there. And your goal for today is just to do a little bit better. Just look a little bit more like Jesus a little bit more like Jesus. Okay? You guys with me? I know it's tough with that time change. I can tell. All right? We're going to make it. But that's, that's his expectation. It's for perfection, but in the meantime, just a little bit better, a little bit better. Okay? So it's no surprise then when we come to this part of the book that Paul, having just walked through this amazing hymn, remember this from a couple of weeks ago? Walks through this amazing hymn of who Jesus is. Like he is the Lord of all. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is God and that he wants us to look like him and to be like him. That now he takes this break. He pauses. And what he's going to do is having set that expectation, he's now going to give us a couple of examples of men just like us, regular dudes, guys just like us, not perfect, but who are striving and straining to look more like Christ a little bit better every day. It's going to give us Timothy and Epaphroditus. It's a fun name, isn't it? Epaphroditus for your next child. Just file that away. What did they call him for short? That's what I wondered. Epi? I don't know. Anyway, he's going to give us Timothy and Epaphroditus and say, hey, these guys, they're not perfect. They're not 
look, they're not God, but they're going to keep striving. They're going to keep modeling their lives after Christ. Okay, so that's where we're headed this morning. Now, before we actually look at this passage, let me give you a little bit of background, because if I don't, it's going to be a little bit confusing what we're talking about here. So if you remember, um, Paul writes this letter several years after he has planted the church at Philippi. So years before he writes this letter, he goes to Philippi. He's got this kid named Timothy with him, and they plant this church in Philippi. And Timothy, man, everybody loves Timothy. And you're going to see why in just a few minutes, okay? So they, they plant this church, and then eventually what inevitably happens for Paul is he gets run out of town because that's what happens to Paul. He, he gets run out of town. So he leaves, and he takes Timothy with him, and they go, and they start planting some more churches, and they do other ministry. And eventually, where we pick up the story, Paul is in Rome where he's writing this letter from, and he's in prison. So he can't leave. He has to stay in Rome, and Timothy is there by his side. Timothy's not imprisoned himself, but he's there serving Paul, ministering to Paul, taking care of Paul, helping Paul in his ministry. Now, the Philippian church, meanwhile, they hear that Paul is in prison. And so they care. They, they, they care that Paul's in prison. They, they love Paul. So what do they do? They get this guy, Epaphroditus, and they commission him. They say, hey, we're going to give you this care package, and you're going to take it to Paul. And so he shows up with this care package and a letter from the Philippians just saying, hey, we care about you. We love you. What's going on? How are you doing? Are you doing okay? But also, all is not well at the church in Philippi. There's some internal strife. There's some, some conflict going on there. There's politics in play. There's different things going on in Philippi. And so they send a request and they say, hey, Paul, we want you to send Timothy back. Keep Epaphroditus, but send Timothy back. We know you need somebody to care for you. Keep Epaphroditus. He can serve you, but send Timothy back. Because Timothy, man, that guy, he's the guy who can come and help us through this time of transition. I always wondered how Epaphroditus felt about that. It's like, you're great. Um, we're going to send you with this care package and send Timothy back. That would be good. I actually, I'll just tell you, I, I feel for Epaphroditus, man. I, I get that guy. I get that guy. Working with Paul, um, I, uh, I had somebody come into the church not too long ago, came into the bridge. They walked in. They said, hey, I'm looking for the pastor. Paul's not here. I said, uh, I'm, I'm one of the pastors. And they go, yeah, um, where's the real pastor? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> all right. So that's what's going on. All right. They're going to, they want him to send Timothy back and to keep Epaphroditus. And so when we get to this part of the section, Paul says this, he's going to, he's going to reply. He's going to do two things, all right? First is, he's going to tell them no. He's going to deny their request. He's going to say, I'm not sending Timothy to you yet. And he's going to explain why. He's going to explain the character of Timothy and the character of Epaphroditus, why he's sending Epaphroditus. He's going to explain all that. But in doing so, the second thing he does, and more importantly for our purposes this morning, because Paul never misses a chance to instruct, he's going to use their examples to show us what it looks like to model our lives after Christ and to serve him. Okay? All right, so that's what we're going to look at. Philippians 2, if you have your Bibles, we're starting in verse 19, and we can read this together. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have nobody like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that surely I myself will come also. All right, so Paul plans to send Timothy, 
And he hopes to follow Timothy as well, Lord willing, if he gets out of prison, but not yet. He says, I'm not going to send Timothy to you yet. And what he wants the Philippians to understand is that the same reason that they value Timothy so highly and they want Timothy back to help them is the same reason that he doesn't want to part with him. Because there's nobody like him. I mean, Timothy is a rare person. And, and what makes him rare? Let's look at this. What does it say about him? Verse 20, there's no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For others, they seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. So what he says about Timothy is that this guy, he actually cares about you. Like he's not just all in it for himself and what's going to get him. He has genuine, sincere concern for you. He puts other people's interests ahead of his own. In short, he looks a lot like Jesus, doesn't he? He sounds a lot like Jesus. Remember that passage? We're not, we don't have time to look at it, but remember in the hymn that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, that Jesus, what does it say about him? He doesn't consider equality with God to be grasped. He humbles himself as a servant, humbles himself and is obedient even to the point of the cross. Jesus doesn't say, hey, it's all about me. It's about my interest. He says, no, 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 I'm going to humble myself. It's about humility and self-sacrifice. I'm going to put others in front of myself. Timothy sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't he? And that's exactly what Paul wants us to see. That's exactly what Paul wants us to understand. That the reason that Timothy, get this, the reason that Timothy has this genuine concern, the reason that Timothy puts the interests of others ahead of himself, is because he looks like Jesus. It's because he has modeled his life after Jesus. It's because he has taken Jesus as his Lord and his King, and he has built his life, he's organized his life, around Jesus as the center. Okay, so let me give you an illustration to kind of help flush this out, all right? So my wife and I, we don't have cable. Um, and so what we like to do when we get away from the kids, like we go and get a hotel room, and in that hotel room, we watch HGTV. I'm serious. It's like an addiction. We can't stop. It's just like, I mean, Property Brothers, anybody seen that show? I love that show. I can't stop. I see a few hands. I love that. Like, I love HGTV. We just sit there. It's like homeowner porn. You know, you just keep watching it. You're like, there it is. There it is. Houses, people being sold, you know, things being sold. It's just, it's just wonderful. Now, look, I know very little about decorating. Like nothing. I know nothing about decorating, but everything I know about decorating comes from HGTV. And here's what I understand. If you have a centerpiece, it defines the room and it informs the decisions that you make about that room. Okay? So it defines the room and it informs what you do with the room, the way you decorate it, the accents, the curtains, all the different things. Now, whatever that centerpiece is, that's going to be what defines the room. Okay, so if you are a guy with your man cave, like you've got your big screen TV, that means you're not going to have like little pink bouquets everywhere, right? You're going to have, you got your man cave, you got your big screen TV, and maybe you got a gun rack. I don't know. You got some weights. I have no idea, all right? I don't have one, but I wish I did, okay? So if that's your centerpiece, that would be awesome, right? Okay, but if it, maybe it's, maybe it's like a priceless vase, right? Because that's, wait, vase. That's what you call it if it's priceless, right? Maybe that's what it is. That's going to determine what the rest of your room looks like. Maybe it's a piece of furniture. That's going to define you, and it's going to determine what the rest of your room looks like. It informs your decisions about how you decorate your room. Now listen to me. Here's, here's where I'm going with this. Anything, whatever it is for you and I, that is our centerpiece, whatever that is, that is going to define us, our lives, and it's going to inform 
what we do and who we do it with. It's going gonna, it's gonna to make all those decisions for us about who we marry, about how many kids we have, where we go to school, kind of education our kids get, the career we choose, the people we associate with, all of those things, because all of it needs to align with and complement that centerpiece. You, you tracking with me? So all the decorations, they've got to align with and complement that centerpiece, and it's the same in our lives. Whatever that centerpiece is in our lives, everything else that goes in there is going to be informed by that centerpiece so that it aligns and complements with it. Let me give you an example. If for you, your centerpiece is success, like if that's your centerpiece, if that's the most precious item to you, the most precious piece of your collection in your life is success, then that is going to define you. Either you'll be successful or not. It's going to define you. It's going to label you. And it's going to inform what you do and who you do it with. So it's going to tell you, you know what? A successful person drives this kind of car. A successful person drives or has this kind of house. A successful person lives in this kind of neighborhood. A successful person has this kind of education. A successful person hangs out with these type of people, but not these type of people. See, whatever that centerpiece is, it's going to define you and it's going to inform what you do and who you do it with. If your centerpiece is physical beauty or fitness or whatever that is, like physical appearance, then that's going to define you. You're either going to be attractive or not attractive. And it's going to inform what you do and who you do it with. So the kind of car that you drive, well, man, if you're a fitness person, man, that means you've got to drive a Subaru with a bike rack on top, right? That's just, it's just given. That's what you have to do. Or, or maybe if you're a beautiful person, you could drive a Mercedes. I, I don't know. Whatever it is. But however you understand your centerpiece, that's going to inform what you do and who you do it with. And what beautiful people don't do, you don't hang out with ugly people. Right? There's no room in your life for them. That doesn't align and complement your centerpiece. Now, some of you are like, Lucas, that's so unfair. Man, I'm not shallow like that. I'm not about success and beauty and just outward appearance. That's ridiculous. I'm about social justice. Like, I'm about caring for people and loving for people. Fantastic. Let's play that game, all right? Let's see how this works out. So if you take social justice, which is great, big believer in it, if you take that and you put that as your centerpiece, guess what? It defines you, and it informs what you do and who you do it with. Which means that there's no place in your life for people who don't care as much as you do, who don't vote the way you do, who have too much money, who don't use their money the way that you want them to use their money. Right? It will inform what you do and who you do it with. It has to align with and complement your centerpiece. Now, here's my point. Anything other than Jesus as your centerpiece will not only define you, but it will become the category by which you discriminate and are prejudiced against others because they don't align and they don't complement your centerpiece. Only Jesus as your centerpiece doesn't allow for that. Only Jesus doesn't allow for that because he defines you. But you know what he defines you as? A child of God by grace. You didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't somehow get yourself into right favor with God. It's grace alone. He defines you, but he also informs what you do and who you do it with. And what does he say? What are you supposed to do? Well, what did he do? It's all about humility and self-sacrifice, putting other people first, having genuine concern for other people. And who does he do it for? Everybody. 
Who are we supposed to do it for? Everybody. There is room for everybody in our room. And Jesus is the only centerpiece who lives up to that. So if you want to be, if you want to be a person who loves people well, not based upon their socioeconomic status, not if they have too much money or too little money, because we can be, we can be biased either way, can't we? Either way. If you want to love people well, not based on the color of their skin or their ethnicity or their, their uh, employment, their career, their life choices, whatever that is, if you want to love people well, the only centerpiece that's going to fit that room is Jesus. And so Paul wants us to see that Timothy, the reason that he has this genuine concern, the reason that everybody loves Timothy and they want Timothy, he's the guy, is because he loves people like that. He looks like Jesus. Jesus is the centerpiece and the rest of his life aligns with and complements Jesus. But Paul's not going to send Timothy. He's not going to send Timothy. No, he's got something else planned. He's going to send Epaphroditus. Now, here's, here's the problem. Remember, they don't want Epaphroditus back. They want him to send Timothy. And so what Paul's going to do here is in this next section is he's going to lay out, he's going to describe Epaphroditus in such a way that he wants them to know, look, you're not getting a raw deal. I'm not sending you like the understudy. I'm sending you Epaphroditus and this kid, man, he's got faith. He's got faith. Check this out. Verse 25, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. I love how he describes him. He's like, look, this guy, he's my brother. He's my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. We are in the trenches together. We're doing this together. It's me and Epaphroditus. He's your messenger and minister to my need for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. This is important. Don't miss that. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. All right, so listen. Uh, there was a very popular, very, very popular teaching all through the church today. And you hear it when you turn on the TV. You hear it in a lot of different churches, a lot of different pastors. It's very popular, but it is very, very wrong. And I'm not naive to think that some of us, man, we haven't been influenced by this. That some of you, maybe this is a part of a tradition that you're coming out of. And so listen to me as I, as I tread into this. I want to do so with gentleness but also with, with clarity and, and firmly, okay? So here, here's this popular teaching that, that you're going to hear, is that there is no place for suffering in the Christian life. There are churches, there are pastors who are preaching this right now, that there is no place for suffering in the Christian life. And then if there is suffering, then what we need to do is just have enough faith. Just believe a little bit more. Just claim God's salvation in your life right now. And he will swoop in like Superman and he will rescue you. Because God never intends for his children to suffer. But let me tell you what scripture says, okay? And then we're going to look at some passages. Listen to me very carefully. The truth is this. God not only allows suffering in the life of his children... He guarantees it. 
He guarantees that if you are his child, there will be suffering. Now, I know some of you don't like to hear that. I know some of you, man, that's rubbing up against something that you believe and you, you don't want to understand this. So let, look, let's just, let's just walk through a few scripture passages together. Okay, don't argue with me. Let, let's look at what God says. And together, listen to me, don't be upset and leave. Together, let's wrestle through this together, looking at God's word. Okay, that's my plea with you. Let's look at this. All right. I could look at dozens. We're just going to look at a few. Luke 9:22. This is kind of the foundation. I want to start with this one. And he said, "The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life." And then he said to them all, "If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me." For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. So what does Jesus say? He says, look, I'm going to be raised to life. Like there is life coming for me, but don't miss this. I'm going to go through the cross. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And it's only then that I get to be raised to life. And what Jesus does is he sets this out as the pattern for all believers. Everybody who's going to come after Jesus, everyone who's going to follow Jesus, the pattern is you've got life. There's the resurrection, but to get there, you've got to go through suffering. It's not optional. Nobody's better than their master, right? No servant is better than their Lord. This is the path that Jesus has carved out for us. And so if we want to get to resurrection, we want to get to life, we want to get to perfection, understand it's going to go through suffering. Let's look at a couple more, okay? That was not what I meant to do. We'll pull it up in just a second. We're looking for it. That's good. All right, Romans 8, 17. Let's look at these. Now if we are children... Then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Do you see the pattern? It's the same pattern. You want to get to resurrection, you have to go through what? Suffering. In order that we share in glory, we share in his sufferings. Philippians 3.10, we're going to get to this in a few weeks. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Again, there's the pattern. This is Jesus's way. You get to resurrection, you go through this pattern of suffering. You follow the path. Hebrews 2.10, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Christ himself, right? He's perfected through suffering. We won't unpack that, but understand, look, the, the, do you see the pattern? Are you seeing this? You want to get to life, you want to get to perfection, you want to get to the resurrection. The pattern always, the path always takes us through suffering. Last one, James 1, 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. He says, look, there are going to be many different trials. It's going to look all different kinds of ways. There's all different kinds of suffering. There's financial struggles, there's sickness, there's death, there's persecution, there's relationships, all kinds of ways that this world and our lives are fractured. He says it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. It's inevitable. This is what he guarantees to us as his children. And so if you've bought into this idea, hear me, listen, if you have bought into this idea that the Christian life is supposed to be trial-free and that we just have to believe a little bit more and just have a little bit more faith and God will make it all go away. Understand that we got to read our Bibles better than that. You've got to correct your theology, okay? God intends to lead us to life. 
but that path always leads through suffering. Now, am I saying that God doesn't rescue us? Am I saying that God doesn't bless us financially? Am I saying that God doesn't heal miraculously? No. No, man, I believe all of that. I believe all of that. I know people, personally, I know people who with cancer, tumor, heart disease, what, like various things, okay, have gone into the doctor and, and they've done tests and as they are getting ready to go under the knife or go into the chemo, suddenly the doctor comes out with another exam and says, okay, I can't explain this, but the test results have changed. I know a family, they, they went in and that was the result that they got and the doctor came out and says, I don't even believe in God, but man, if there's ever a reason, this is a miracle. Like, I can't explain this. Do I believe that God does the miraculous? Absolutely. Amen. But he does so in accordance with his will. And sometimes he says no. And so it's not for us to just claim this. Like we just have enough faith and I'm just going to claim this in the name of Jesus. Listen, in the name of Jesus, attaching that to a prayer It's not like this magic formula where God was like, you know, I wasn't planning on healing this person, but now that you said in the name of Jesus, I guess I'll go ahead and have to do that. No, it is in accordance to his will. And so we pray for healing. We pray that God would would rescue people out of poverty. We, We ask that God would heal relationships, that he would move, and he does, but sometimes he says no. And his plan for us always, always through those circumstances is not to leave us there, but to journey with us through it, through that to perfect us and to lead us to life. And so we shouldn't be shocked here that Epaphroditus, we shouldn't be shocked here that Epaphroditus, man, even when he's carrying out God's mission, like if there was ever a time that you think God would be like, all right, I'm going to pave the way. You are doing my work, son, so I'm just going to make this easy for you. You just go ahead. It's going to be no problem for you. Like, this would make sense, but that's not what God does. Instead, God gives Epaphroditus the privilege of following in the footsteps of his Savior. It's the privilege that he gives to the Apostle Paul. Remember Paul? He prays to God, hey, I've got this thorn in my side. Please take this from me, God. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. Remember Timothy. Timothy's got a stomach ailment and God doesn't heal him miraculously that we know of. Instead, what does Paul say? He says, drink a little more. I never had a doctor give me that advice. It just, that hasn't happened. Okay? See, he gives Epaphroditus the privilege, the same privilege that he gives to Paul, that he gives to to Timothy, that he gives to each one of us to walk in the footsteps of his Savior and through that to perfect him, to make him more like Christ. And it's on that basis It's on that basis that Paul says, hey, you guys should honor this kid. Man, this kid's got faith. Like, you shouldn't be unhappy that I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you. Like, you should be excited about this. This kid, man, he followed you when he didn't have to. Look at what it says here, remember? He says, verse 29, So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. He says, you shouldn't be unhappy that I'm sending Epaphroditus. Don't feel like you're getting the short end of the stick. Like you should welcome this guy back with open arms. Honor him. Why? Because when he could have turned back, when it could have been so much easier just to say, man, I don't feel good. I'm headed out of here. Man, when he knew his very life was on the line, he risked everything for the sake of the gospel. This word risking right here, 
risking. This can be more literally translated gambling. The idea here is that Epaphroditus, man, he looked at his odds. He looked what was going on and he said, okay, I'm going to bet my life on the gospel. I'm going to lay it all out there. I'm going to press on even if it costs me my life. I'm going to gamble that. Why? For the sake of the gospel. Listen, listen to me. If you are a brother and sister in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, listen to me. We have got to quit playing life so stinking safe. Quit playing life safe. Like if we want to be part of God's mission, what he's doing in this world, if we want to be part of ushering in and bringing in the kingdom into this world, seeing new territory taken for the name of Christ, if we want to see God do something in our lives, we've got to take a chance. We've got to take a risk. See, I know some of you, you come in here on Sunday mornings, you're like, man, I don't understand why I don't see God moving during my week. I don't feel, I don't know why, you know, I come in on Sunday and I sing and I I get into it and that's great. But then during the week, I don't sense God's Holy Spirit, something powerfully moving in me. Listen, if you want to experience that, you've got to take a step of faith big enough that God's actually going to have to catch you. Okay? So if you want God to save you, if you want God to catch you and to move in your life in that kind of way, then you've got to take a step off that cliff. If you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. And see, what we do is we sit in the boat with our life jackets going, where's God? Where's God? Where's God? And all this time, God is sitting outside. He's standing on the water going, come on out. Just get out of the boat. Like, just take a step out onto the water and watch what I'll do. Watch what I'll do. Man, you have no idea how I want to, to use you, how I want to lead you, how I want to move powerfully in your life for the sake of my gospel to bring in this kingdom. Just get out of the boat. Just take a step. And we're sitting in the boat clutching those life jackets going, where's God? Where's God? Where's God? There's this verse. First Corinthians 15, 19. This, this verse haunts me. This verse haunts me. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. This verse keeps me up at night because what Paul's saying here, he's saying that the way the Christian life is meant to be lived, it's like we've put this huge bet on the gospel and if it doesn't pan out, we walk away empty-handed. We are to be pitied above all. We are fools and we are losers. See, this is what Paul does. Right? He says, I'm going to put it all in. Paul is all in. He's betting everything on the gospel. Everything, these guys not holding any chips back. He's not like, okay, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to put some of these chips in. I'm going to keep some of these back here. He's not hedging his bets. He says, I'm betting everything on the gospel. And the question is, are we? Are we betting everything on the gospel? Are we hedging our bets? See, Paul is a fool if it turns out that the gospel isn't true. If the gospel isn't true and the Lord and Jesus isn't Lord, then Paul's a fool for preaching, being thrown into prison, being beaten, and suffering an untimely death. Like that's a stupid, foolish thing to do. And if the gospel isn't true and the Lord isn't, Jesus isn't Lord, then Epaphroditus, man, he's a fool for pressing on. He should have turned around and gotten some help. And my fear is that you and I, man, are we betting anything on the gospel? If if it turns out that the gospel isn't true, that Jesus isn't Lord, will we have lost anything than a few Sunday mornings in our life? 
maybe a few dollars thrown into the offering plate. Like, would anyone pity us? Have we ever done anything truly foolish for the sake of the gospel? See, we're supposed to look foolish. We're supposed to make decisions that don't make sense to the world. Like the way that you spend your money, the way that I spend our, my money, like the world should look at us and go, what are you doing? What are you thinking? You got to save more. You don't give all that money away. I mean, I understand throwing a few dollars at charity, but you, you're, you're giving money away like you're invested in something else precisely. Like people should look at us and say, why are you spending your time that way? Man, you only get a little bit of vacation. Why are you... you Using some of that to go to Pestra, Bulgaria to work with children. Like, that doesn't make sense. You've only got two weeks. Don't take most of it to go to Bulgaria. Use it on yourself. You've got a few other days. Use a weekend. See, the world should not understand the way that we live. The world should look at our lives and they should pity us. They should wonder, what in the world are we thinking in the way that we, the way that we raise our children, the way that we decide where we're going to live, the car that we drive, all those different things because Jesus is our centerpiece. And everything should align and complement with him. And if they don't see that centerpiece, they should look at the rest of the room and all the decorations and everything that's in it and go, I don't get it. I don't get it. This room doesn't fit at all. This room totally doesn't work. Like, what were you thinking? And then we show them the centerpiece and they go, oh, okay, I get it now. It all ties together. See, which life are we betting on? Which life are we betting on? This one or the next? Have we pushed our chips in? Or are we hedging our bets? I know for some of you this morning, some of you this morning, you're sitting there, you're like, man, I want to be all in. I want to push all my chips in. I'm not even sure exactly what that looks like, but I'm just ready. You've got this passion. You've got this fire. You feel the Holy Spirit pushing on your life. Man, I want to be all in. I want to be like Paul. And you're trying to figure out what does that look like? And you're wrestling with that. And let me just encourage you with that. Keep wrestling I can't tell you what that looks like. Like, are you supposed to quit your job and go be a missionary with the crams in Cambodia? I don't know. Maybe. Let's keep that option on the table. What, shall we? Like, does it mean you're supposed to sell everything and go live with the poor? Man, I don't know. Maybe. But whatever that is, you've got to wrestle with that. And you've got to be faithful in the small things. Be a fool for Christ in small ways. And then look for those opportunities where God's going to say, man, okay, now I'm going to ask you for something big. I'm going to ask you to take a chance. I'm going to ask you to get out of the boat and then be ready. And so in the meantime, just seek God's leading. Keep seeking that. Man, don't let anybody tell you to chill out or quit being so radical. Okay, fan that flame. That is a gift from God, all right? I think for probably a lot of us, we're in a position where it's like, you know what, I, I want to be all in, but I don't. You know, it's like, I want to, but I don't want to. And so listen, don't be crushed by this. Remember that expectation of perfection. We're not trying to get there all at one time. So don't feel the weight of that. It's like this burden. You walk out of here like, I can't live up to that. Just raise your bet a little bit. Like what's one area in your life that you can go, okay, I can raise my bet just a little bit. I've got the hand. I know I've got the winning hand. It's, this is hard for me. This is scary. I just want to raise my bet. Maybe it's that relationship with a neighbor. You know, you've known him for years and it's time to raise that bet and actually share your story with him just a little bit. Look a little more foolish for the gospel. Maybe for someone else, it's, it's, you know, you've, you've sent people on mission trips. You've given, you've prayed, and it's time this summer for you to go. Maybe you should consider going to Pestra, Bulgaria with us. Maybe it means you need to, to take a chance financially and invest. You know, I'm not saying here. I mean, you just invest somewhere in the gospel work that's being done. Like, let go of that a little bit more. How are you going to raise your bet? Just do a little bit better. 
just look a little bit more like Jesus. That's all we're trying for. But I know that some of you this morning, some of you, if you're honest, like this, this just isn't where you're at. And if you're honest, like there's nothing that you've really invested. There's no, you've never made a bet. You've got no skin in the game. There are no chips pushed out on the table. And if that's where you're at this morning, let me just, I just want to encourage you that praise God that he's showing that to you right now. That you don't need to live under this delusion that, you know what, I, I'm a Christian and, and I know Jesus because look, if you don't have anything in the game, then you need to wrestle with whether or not you've really received his gift of salvation by grace and through faith. Have you really received forgiveness of sins? Have you really repented and accepted him as your Lord and Savior? Because if he is your God, then he's going to be pushing you. The Holy Spirit is going to be moving you to place some bets, to look a bit foolish for the sake of the gospel. So let me encourage you, if that's where you're at this morning, praise God that he's revealing that to you. And listen, don't leave here going, I, you know what, I don't really know if I know Jesus. Don't leave here this morning burdened down by that. Instead, listen, come talk to me. Come talk to one of the staff. You know, we've got some people who are going to be praying right up here later. And I promise you, I guarantee you, we want to walk with you through that. So if you're sitting there this morning going, man, I thought I was a believer. I thought I knew Jesus, but now I'm not so sure. I don't seem to have anything other than a few Sunday mornings pushed out onto the table. Then come talk to us, okay? Which life are you betting on? Which life are you betting on? If someone was to look at your life, would it make sense apart from the gospel? Or would it just look like madness until you understand that the gospel, that Jesus is your centerpiece. Um, the band is going to come back up and they're going to close us out here. Um, and I just want to spend a, a moment praying for you all. Um, I was thinking about this this morning. As I was just kind of praying and thinking through this and preparing, um, you know, one day, look, we're all going to be face to face with our Lord and Savior, with Jesus, our God, our King. And, and I don't know about you, but I don't want to say, I hedged my bets. I, I don't want to look him in the face and say, yeah, you know, I, I kind of held something back because I just wasn't sure that this was going to pan out the way I wanted. You know, I just, I, there were some things in life that I really wanted to enjoy and I wanted to, that was where I was going to place some of my bets. So I, I bet on you, Jesus, but I didn't put it all in. I don't want to be that guy. What I want is to be able to say, Jesus, I, I, I bet it all on you. I put all those chips on the table.